Welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Today, we're taking up the topic of utopia. What value do dreams of a better world have for understanding politics in the real world? What impact has utopian thinking had on the evolution of the political world over the past few centuries? Can imagining utopias provide a way to solve political challenges in our contemporary world? These and other questions our guest today addresses in his marvelous new book entitled Utopia. Our guest is Professor Mark Jindrizic, Professor of Political Science and Public Administration at the University of North Dakota. Mark is a Providence College political science alum of the class of 1986, and I am proud to say one of my former students. He is one of a select few of our poli-sci graduates who, I hope, inspired by by their study of political science at Providence College, went on to pursue a PhD in the subject. Professor Jindrizic has been on the faculty of the University of North Dakota since 1999, and has served as department chair and won numerous awards for his research, teaching, student advising, and service to his university. He has published numerous scholarly articles in political theory and several books. His latest, Utopia, was published late last year by Polity Press. Professor Mark Jindrisic, nice to see you and welcome to Beyond Your Newsfeed. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Hudson, it's great to be here. One of these days, hopefully, uh, you can come to Providence and we can see each other in person rather than just connecting by Zoom. That would be lovely. Zoom technology, Providence and North Dakota are connected so we can talk about utopia. That idea was probably at some point in the past in somebody's utopian vision, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Activated utopia. Okay, to start us off. You want to tell us, a little, tell us a little bit about your interest in utopia? Uh, sure. Interested in the in the in the topic and 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 kind of how what's what was the the path toward writing this book? Well, it's interesting. It started when I was actually very young. I'm from Chicopee, Massachusetts, which is the home of the famous author Edward Bellamy, who wrote uh, the perhaps the third best selling novel of the 19th century, Looking Backward, a utopian uh, exploration of America in the 21st century, and uh, He's, you know, he, his uh, house uh, is in Chicopee, and my father, for many years, was president of the Edward Bellamy Memorial Association. And when I was a kid, you know, I, the, the association purchased the home, uh, it became a National Historic Landmark, and over the years, slowly restored the house towards something like its 19th century appearance. And so as a child, I was involved in tearing out walls, putting in insulation. Uh, I think I, I think I actually would buff the floors in the entire building uh, one summer, uh, dug out stumps from the backyard, uh, mowed the lawn there many times. And so I, I kind of had this you know, almost like practical utopian experience working at the Bellamy House. And when I was in college, I helped my dad catalog the collection that the, uh, the association had built up over about 20 years. Uh, of you know books, materials, fascinating things like uh, you know versions of looking backward in, in languages like Finnish and uh, in, in Arabic and things like that that you would never expect, and so that was the beginning of it. 
but I really didn't start studying utopia seriously until I was, I was working at the University of Virginia. And as part of my contract, I had to teach a class and I could design whatever I felt like. And I, so I decided to design a class on utopia. And it was a really uh, interesting experience. The students got to read and, and encounter works they never read before. And uh, I taught that class at uh, a number of institutions at Bucknell University, at the University of Mississippi, and then multiple times here at the University of North Dakota. And then I got involved with uh, the Society for Utopian Studies. This is their, uh, their journal, Utopian Studies. And I started attending their meetings, and it's a wonderful organization. Uh, of all the academic organizations I've ever been part of, it's the most uh, friendly, the most cooperative. Uh, people really work you know, positively together and are really encouraging in your interests. I found that was wonderful. If I may interrupt, a utopian vision of academia. <laughs> it's it's true. It's it's very interdisciplinary, uh, and 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 people aren't you know they're not you know they're not trying to you know one up each other at the conferences. Everyone, it's amazing. And if I can just give a shout out here to the sort of patriarch, if you will, of utopian studies, Lyman Tower Sargent. He's a retired political theorist from uh, the University of uh, Missouri St. Louis, and he's one of the most wonderful people you'd ever meet and he really inspired me he's probably about 90 years old now but he, he has a beard like a biblical patriarch and he has just designed he built he's built this amazing bibliography of utopian works he's devoted his life to it and he's just you know he's like an amazing man and you, and you say to yourself if this person is studying utopia i want to study utopia too if this is a person who's so dedicated to it and so interesting and so helpful. Every every work I've ever sent him to, to read and comment on, he's always been incredibly helpful. So I think that's part of the utopian aspect of it is that, you know, we work together for a greater good. Yeah, super. Now, I, I remember from your undergraduate days, uh, your work on the, the story of Edward Bellamy. But I have to admit, Mark, I myself never read Looking Backward until this just this year. Uh, I taught a course... Uh, on Zoom, of course, last spring. Uh, obviously, it was a course on American socialism with a colleague in the history department, and we assigned Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward, and I read it. So in a little while, we can get into some of the details about that book, which I think is a, a very fascinating one. Uh, but now that you've reminded me, I think I'm going to make a pilgrimage to Chicopee and visit, uh, since I have, in fact, have read, read that book, which it's just astounding. It was one of the best sellers of the, of the 19th century. Uh, only the, the Bible and Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, sold more, right? So, I, I believe Ben Hur was a, a, a public, publishing success, too. Ben Hur. <laughs> you know, it, it was Uncle Tom's Cabin, Ben Hur, and then looking backward. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. The 1890s. Okay. Well, uh, great. Uh, so, so that's a very good uh, uh, description. I think it's fascinating to, to learn about how scholars get interested in topics. And, and I think very often, like you, those interests often start very young. When you, you first get the idea, and then only when you get older and more mature and have the skills, you can really write a book on something you've been fascinated with for a long time. So, so tell us. What is utopia exactly? <laughs> this is <laughs> we can open that can of worms. It's it is it is a fascinating question. I think there are many different definitions. There's there's uh, the definition of utopia as a philosophical uh, enterprise, and uh, Ruth Levitas, a famous utopian scholar, 
famously defined utopia as the imaginary reconstruction of society. And so that's one part of the definition is a rebuilding or a reconstruction of society on different premises, uh, usually more just, more equitable, uh, fairer, in that sort of way. Uh, another way to look at utopia is in practice, in, in the creation of communities, intentional communities, as they're called. And, and uh, Lyman Tower Sargent defines that as it, five or more people who come together sharing a vision of how to live together. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course. His definition is much more scholarly. But that's the other part of utopia. There's the, the philosophical, literary sort of design of utopia. And then there's the actual people trying to live in communities, uh, live under some sort of uh, utopian vision, some sort of vision of more equ equitable living, uh, justice. Uh, there's a lot of communities now, of course, that are religiously based. There are communities that are you know, ecologically based. So there's, there's all manner of different uh, ways of defining it. But I think utopia, the aspiration for utopia, the dream of utopia, I think, is a dream of a better world, a more just world, a world in which uh, people receive what they deserve. Uh, you know, that I think is critical. Uh, you know, not necessarily what they merit, but what they deserve in the sense that we are all humans. And Bellamy, in Looking Backward, talks a lot about that, that, you know, in, in his society, people receive what they deserve as human beings. For no other reason but that they are humans and they deserve uh, to live in you know security in peace and in plenty so i think that's the key utopian aspiration an idea of justice uh that goes beyond uh sort of just you know every man for himself or goes beyond uh you know the struggle for survival in capitalism and i think the other part of the utopian vision that's important and one that really always has struck me is is to create institutions that are in, that are based on human intention and aren't really just sort of the ramshackle arrangements most of that most human political forms have been for most of human history. Um, I think that's a critical thing too that that you that uh, the the community, the state, can be a conscious work of human reason and will, and not merely just something imposed on us by nature or force. Yeah, well, well that's a very good introduction. So, and and in your book, you you point out that this kind of thinking is very ancient. That is, we can, we can go back to, to works by, by ancient, in ancient times and find people doing this kind of thing, both having the utopian vision, uh, but also trying to form intentional communities of, of certain kinds. And you want to tell us more about that? Sure. Where do we first find human beings being utopian? Well, that that you know, that is that is a fascinating question. I think we can look back to Plato uh, in the Western tradition uh, as someone consciously designing a community. Uh, certainly, in his early early dialogues, uh, Timaeus and Critias, he talks about Atlantis as a sort of designed and planned community. Uh, certainly, in the Republic, he is laying out a community that will produce justice. And one of the interesting things about the Republic, of course, is that to achieve justice, you have to do some rather unpleasant things. And so there's always that question of how far are you willing to go to achieve your vision of justice? How far should you go to try to shape human beings to meet a particular vision? And there were certainly uh, com intentional communities in ancient times as well. We have um, you know, escaped slave communities in places like Sicily that tried to live under some new law. Uh, the, you know, I argued in my book, the Spartans in many ways have a sort of utopian vision about them for the Spartan citizens, but no one else, of course, which is 
the ugly side of Sparta. Um, but you can look at you know uh, groups like the Essenes in ancient uh, uh, Judea, you know, withdrawing themselves from society, trying to live in a sort of purified community. Uh, and this goes into the medieval period with monasteries, uh, which you know are, are a vision of, of, a, of a world of order and of, of justice uh, that is uh, you know not likely to occur outside of that sort of world at, at that time. And it's also true of early Christian communities, right? Oh, absolutely, they, absolutely. Those were, they saw themselves as as, as uh, creating a, a vision of life that was in opposition to the pagan society around them. Absolutely. Now, the first book entitled Utopia is written by Thomas More, and, and you write almost an entire chapter about this very interesting book. So tell us a little bit about Thomas More's Utopia, and, and to what extent did that book become, become kind of a, a template for utopian thinking and utopian writing? Well, I think it's important that, to point out that the, the Christianity has always been ambivalent towards the idea of utopia. Because as St. Augustine says, true justice is not of this world, right? Justice can only be attained in the heavenly city. And so to try to design a perfected society is an act of, you know, perhaps sinful pride uh, in, under a lot of Christian thought. And so Moore is doing something very radical in proposing this. Um, now, of course, he's, he's clearly got inspirations in Plato and inspirations in ancient uh, utopian thought. I'm sure he's aware of that. But Moore is a theory very devout Catholic, right? Yes, yes, and yes. Someone who would take Augustine's admonition quite seriously. Yes. I think the way I look at it, there's several ways to look at this, uh, and it's endless debate. One is that the book is a satire and not meant to be taken seriously. But I don't think people write large, complex books purely for sat satirical purpose. I think there's a, I think what Moore is trying to do is he's trying to suggest that here are these people living like true Christians. Though they are not Christian themselves, they are living in the principles of love thy neighbor as thyself. They're, they're sharing all they have with their fellow men. Uh, so I think one of the arguments that I've seen made about utopia, and one that I'm, I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to, is that Moore is basically thinking of how we could design a society around true Christian principles of brotherhood, of, of mutual love. And, uh, and I think that's kind of the second Part of utopia the second it's divided into two books the second book is the design of utopia and some people have compared it to a giant monastery uh, but i think it's more than that i think it is it is an effort at, at designing a community that would actually be truly christian in the sense of love thy neighbor as thyself which i think is very important yeah I know, I, what's the connection of, of utopia to to moore's own political position of course he was the chancellor of king henry the eighth and what this would be around 15, 15, 16, I believe the book came out, 15, 16. Yeah, something like that. And, and you, you, you note in your book that, that, that the writing may have been influenced by the discovery of the new world. Can you say a little more about that? Sure. Well, I think it's important to recognize that the discovery of the new world opens up all manner of imaginative possibilities. Because here's this blank slate on which you can create these, these you know, uh, imaginary reconstructions of society. And so, and there were a whole number of them, you know, Francis Bacon, a group of other people, uh, you know, wrote utopias that were set in this new world or in these newly discovered lands. And so I think the, that was a, a, an imaginative leap 
where you could say, this is a new place. And this is a place where you know, people may live under different and possibly better principles. And so that's more sets his utopia somewhere in what appears to be you know, far South America, it looks like based on the internal evidence of the text. So it opens up all manner of imaginative possibilities and all manner of projections. And you can see that if you've ever seen like, you know, cartoons of the strange creatures that supposedly inhabit the newly discovered lands, you know, people with feet on their heads and crazy stuff like that. And I think Moore is taking those speculations and saying, well, let's speculate not about, you know, monstrous creatures. Let's speculate about human beings, how they might live differently under different conditions, how they might, you know, how that might uh, exist in some place and how that, these might be examples to us. I think it's an imaginative exercise in, in world building for sure. Uh-huh. And, the, and the book features a traveler. His name, of course, writes, Raphael Hathleday, right, you know, angelic messenger Raphael, but Hathleday translates as, as speaker of nonsense. So the, and the book is full of those sorts of puns, right? That the capital is the city without people, the river is the waterless river. Uh, you know, and Moore is punning for his friends because he's writing Latin. But, you know, there's always that question of how seriously we are to take, you know, what Moore is saying in the work. And, but the messenger, the, the, the person who goes to Utopia, who goes to a better place and is converted to its ways is absolutely a trope that runs throughout utopian writing and, and dystopian writing too. And uh, Moore's utopia also, it, it features equality, democracy, um, you know, certainly concepts that were not present in Henry VIII's England. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also, interestingly, religious tolerance. And uh, I'm struck by that because Moore famously uh, was not adverse to sending heretics to the stake, that he was kind of the enforcer of religious orthodoxy until he himself was uh, executed for violating the new religion of, uh, of Henry's new uh, new religious uh, position. But, but uh, what do you make of that, that, he, that this totally features religious tolerance? Whew, that's a tough call. Uh, I should reread my chapter and see what I said about it. Um, I, you know, I, I've been, I've, I have to admit that, that I, I find that an interesting thing. I, I wonder if Moore sees, this is something I just thought about recently, if Moore saw the dangers that were coming in terms of religious warfare, in terms of struggles over effectively unanswerable questions of faith. And I wonder if like a lot of people, he, he said, we can just put these aside. You know, we, we, we all agree on the basics, right? The, the utopians all have to agree there is a supreme being and there is some sort of eternal reward or punishment, right? That's the only, that's the thing they have to all agree on. And I think more like a lot of people, I think, uh, you know, would say that's, you know, if once we start from position of agreement, maybe we can work through our other disagreements. I think he may have seen presciently, right, the religious warfare that would tear Europe apart for the next century and a half, and may have been worried about it. Uh, you know, I think it's 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 not an unusual desire uh, among people, among politicians, to say, well, we all kind of agree on on everything, right? We all kind of agree on the basics. Uh, I believe President Eisenhower famously said, "Every American should have a religion, and I don't care what it is." Um, I mean, uh, when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, he gave a speech, I think it was in 2007, 2008, um, you know, on faith in America. And he basically makes that same claim, right, that we all kind of believe the same good things. Um, And so it's possible that I think Moore foresees 
the dangers of of attempting to enforce orthodoxy, but I think he also you know believed that he should as as enforcing the laws. Right, he was chancellor of England. And also, if if this this society, this utopia, is, is sort of the model of the ideal Christian community, um, heresy is kind of impossible, right? Everybody uh, who's conforming to the rules of the society is 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 going to be uh, is not going to be led astray by false doctrines. Yes, because there's very little doctrine, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, yeah. Although. Although he does provide for pretty severe uh, sanctions um, for people who deviate from the rules of the society, right? Yes. This is a feature throughout utopian works. Um, I actually published a paper once on crime and punishment in utopia. And extreme punishments for violations are, are a feature of things like Moore's Utopia, uh, the English revolutionary from the 17th century, Gerard Wynne Stanley's New Law of Freedom. Uh, Bellamy's Looking Backward and Equality also have some fairly severe punishment for people who do not conform. And I think that's partially because I think you know, these utopias believe that their ideas are good. And how could someone perversely reject them? And thus, those people become dangers in a way perhaps they don't become in other societies because... The, 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 the ideas of our society are so good and so self-evidently true, you must be some perverse individual wanting to destroy society itself by not believing them. And so, you know, Moore has executions for all sorts of things, you know, adultery and stuff, uh, atheism. Uh, Bellamy practice, has a practice of banishment uh, in Equality, the sequel to Looking Backward. If you don't want to work, basically they banish you to the wilderness with some tools and it's like you're on your own. So that, I think that's a feature of an unfortunate feature, perhaps of utopia. But I think it comes from the idea that our society is so good. How can you possibly not see the good in it? You must be wanting to destroy its very reason for being. Mm. Um, can we jump a few centuries to the end of the nineteenth century, which, in some ways, you describe as kind of the golden era of utopia? There's all these different utopian writings, including Bellamy's and. And maybe we can start by talking a little more about Bellamy in detail. You've talked a lot about him, and I'm kind of chomping at the bit to get into this very fascinating book. And Bellamy's book also features a traveler, right? Yep. A time traveler, yes. It's because a time traveler. Yep. Yeah, Julian West falls asleep in 1887 in Boston and wakes up in 2000 in Boston. Yeah, it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting, uh, interesting trope. Yeah, and supposedly, while he's sleeping in a basement in, in his house in Boston, it, it gets demolished, right? And he's buried, and then in 2000, he's discovered uh, by this and his family. I guess they're, they're doing renovations or something. They, they right. discover right. This, this, this sort of cement vault that he's sleeping in, and, and he rises out, and to his amazement, yes. finds out yes. this... Uh, this, this society. What's interesting is Bellamy himself admitted that the story, uh, you know, of West's falling asleep, this, this, this sort of romance between West and, and, and the Leti's daughter, uh, this is just a skeleton on which to hang ideas, right? He was very honest about that. He said, this is the bare minimum story I needed on which to hang my ideas, which I thought was, you know, an interesting thing. 
but these sorts of novels of ideas were not unusual. I mean, you know, the very didactic sort of, uh, you know, uh, dialogue, uh, you know, certainly William Morris's News from Nowhere is very much like that as well. It's a bare skeleton of a story with, you know, didactic presentations throughout. I find Bellamy's sort of vision of the future kind of interesting. Uh, he does spend a lot of time talking about, unusual style. of course, he's very concerned about uh, industrial conflict at the end of the 19th century. Right? That, that's really the centerpiece. Uh, in fact, the, the book starts out with there's there's a labor there's a strike going on, and and uh, West is, this guy is very sort of upset about this this labor conflict, and so he spends a lot of time when he gets to the utopian world of 2000, talking about how industrial conflict has been resolved, and there's a new industrial order, uh, which has a kind of socialistic aspect uh, where everything is, there's, there's no more private property uh, and everything's sort of organized in a very uh, systematic, systematic way. Well, it's, it's fascinating the, the way Bellamy approaches the change, um, that over time, capital became more and more concentrated. And eventually, you know, the state became the sort of the single monopolist and single employer. And it's, it's really the mechanisms of the utopia are fascinating. You have an industrial army where everyone is required to work. Uh, you have, you know, a moneyless society. And I think that's important for, for people too, because one of the features of many utopian works is, is the elimination or the abolition of money. Uh, Moore talks about this. He, he, you know, gold is an object of derision to the utopians. They don't use money. They think people who use it are foolish because they believe money has this reality distorting effect. And, and Bellamy does too. So the, the, the utopians receive this sort of stipend from the state on a sort of debit card and they, they can spend that money. And he makes it very clear that they, they're given so much that they really, you know, you, you have to work hard to spend all the money you get every year. Um, so it's, it's a society, this is a society that's overcome uh, shortages, overcome, you know, competition, overcome all that sort of scarcity model of capitalism. And it's, you know, as he says, I think Dr. Leete says somewhere in the book, the country is rich. Why shouldn't we, you know, spend everything we have? And there's, you know, there's no incentives to saving. It's, it's really a, what he, what he's, what he, what Belly argues is, I think, is that values have been revalued, right? That, that all the values of people under capitalism that led to industrial strife, that led to wars between nations, that led to, you know, this sort of struggle, this social Darwinistic struggle for survival that's so popular in the late 19th century, these conditions have been wiped away by an incredibly productive society that has really overcome the problem of scarcity and is able to make sure everyone receives you know, what they deserve as a human being, uh, not what they earn through some sort of self-sacrifice. So it's a, really, it's a really fascinating thing to think about, escaping the problems of scarcity, escaping the distorting effects of competition and money in a society. It's also intriguing that the, the sort of social milieu that this guy finds himself in is not only all that different from upper middle class or middle class 19th century America. The family he stays with, uh, they kind of, they have high tea, they uh, pay up. Uh, they have dinner every night, uh, you know, and dress for dinner and all the things that you associate with kind of upper class uh, English or American uh, people. And, and that's retained. And also, 
uh, sort of patriarchal views of women in a way. I mean, the, the, he, in fact, Bellamy was attacked for by feminists, right? For the way he portrayed women in the Yes. Yes. Yeah, there was, there was, it was, it was, it's a, it's a very traditional portrayal, even though women do work, even though women have this parallel industrial army. Uh, yeah, I often ask the question, what does the Leite's daughter actually do? Uh, you know, it, you, you can't really tell if she has a job or not. She goes shopping, right? She loves to go shopping. She goes shopping. She's an yes, she's an indefatigable shopper, as her father calls her. And it's a, uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I think one of the reasons for the popularity of the book is that you can read it and, and, and not feel threatened by the changes, right? So you don't have, you know, radical feminists, you know, running loose in the streets. You don't have, you know, uh, socialist revolutionaries running things. You have, you know, reasonable men of, of good family, apparently, you know, running society. And so I think that's one of the reasons for the book was so popular because it is, it is a you know, not a violent upheaval. It is not a, a giant shift in society at all. It is basically just a, it's a, you know, we're going to live the same basic way we live. People still have their houses, right? They still live in nuclear families. Uh, the father is still the authority figure. You know, women are still retiring. I mean, there's a wonderful scene where they have, they have dinner and the women leave while the men have cigars uh, and, and talk about important things. So yeah, it's, Belby's a genteel revolutionary. Yeah, he, and he, he, he disavowed really the idea that this was a socialist society. He didn't he disavowed the term socialist. Although at, at socialists at the time will take up, looking backward, right? They'll take up these ideas and, and, and popularize them. And uh, these Bellamy societies are, are really quite a phenomenon, right? Across yes, all over the country, all over the world, uh, there were Bellamy societies and there still are. Uh, you know, the book was a blockbuster success, uh, translated into multiple languages. And I, again, I think one of the keys to its appeal is this this idea of equity and justice that you know people will get what they deserve as human beings. And I think the other appeal is that that these sorts of fundamental changes in society can be attained without war, without civil war, without you know revolutionary violence, which I think is a critical feature as well. Yeah, and, and there were a lot of these. Besides Bellamy, there are other utopias. H.G. Wells writes one. I mentioned Larry Morris. Uh, I was interested in, in Charlotte Perkins Gilman, creates a feminist utopia. You want to tell our listeners about that book? I, that's Charlotte Perkins Gilman's a fascinating uh, figure. She actually went to the Rhode Island School of Design uh, and uh, a small world. And uh, she uh, you know, had an unsuccessful first marriage moved to California, eventually remarried. Uh, and she became a, a, an editorialist, a writer on women's subjects. Uh, I recommend for people, she wrote really good short stories. The Yellow Wallpaper is, is a fascinating uh, ex exploration of, uh, of patriarchal me medical practices and postpartum depression. Uh, the Yellow Wallpaper, it's a great story. Uh, and she became very, very, she was close to Bellamy. Uh, she, she was part of the nationalist movement. Uh, and she was a crusader for the usual women's rights issues in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, her famous utopia is called Herland. And it's a wonderful book uh, because it posits a female-only society in the Andes Mountains, which is discovered by these three American explorers 
who are sort of male archetypes. You know, one is a sensitive guy, one is a sort of scholarly fellow, another one is sort of a, you know, I don't know what you describe, a, a man's man, if you will. And it's a wonderful book because it, it basically is a deconstruction of male assumptions about what is necessary in society. Right? The men assume, oh, a society of women must be, must be anarchical because women would never cooperate. Uh, you know, we can just take this society over because we're manly men. And throughout the book, the, every time the men attempt to do something manly, like escape or enforce their will on the women, they are easily dealt with by the combined forces of the women of her land. And it's, a, it's really a, a wonderful deflation of sort of male pretensions to superiority and, and, and patriarchy. Um, it's also, of course, a, you know, a book about how you would live cooperatively, how you'd live in harmony with the earth. Uh, you know, the, the, her land is described as a vast garden, uh, you know, tilled by these women. And so it's a great critique, I think, of, of presumptions about what is natural, what is accepted in the world, and how the world should work uh, based on you know male assumptions and male dominance. So it's a really neat book. Uh, although it does have some some features which are less than pleasant, as as Bellamy's Utopia does. Uh, you know, supposedly the, the women living in the Andes are actually, you know, of Aryan descent. We're not exactly sure why. And, uh, and Gilman did write a sequel called With Her and Our Land, which is uh, uh, pretty uh, hard reading these days because it's very, it has some, you know, ant, much anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, some anti-Semitic sentiment as well. So as with Bellamy, who basically ignores, you know, black people in looking backward completely, uh, and places women in subordination. You know, these people are a product of their times as well. But Hurtland is a fascinating book. It really is, and it's it's a it's a good quick read. That's why I like to assign it to my students. But it really gets at, you know, how would you, how would you design a society where women are just people, and not the objects of male construction, not the objects of male desire, but women are just people. And I think that's the real brilliant thing in her land. They're people, right? They're not what men want them to be or what they need to be in a society dominated by men. So it's really, it's a really fascinating little book. It really is. There's an extensive discussion in your book about whether or not utopia is a kind of political ideology. Do you want to explain that? What, what, what's the issue there? What? Yeah. For a long time, uh, I, you know, there's a whole series of books. Karl Popper wrote a very famous book where he basically claimed utopian thought was totalitarian. It led to you know, the Nazis and fascism, uh, the excesses of communism and the, you know, the Chinese communist regime. The claim was... Enemies, that, right? what's the book that? is Open Society and its Enemies. Yes, yes, correct. I forgot the title. Thank you. Um, yeah, and, and, and the argument is often made that utopia requires forcing people into certain molds that ideology you know you force people to live up to an ideology not up to how they actually are and so the claim is generally made that utopia is dangerous because if we take Karl Marx for example as utopian his followers tried to apply a utopian doctrine which led to the gulags and all sorts of other horrible things and uh, that argument has some weight I think if you look at the history of revolutions uh, French Revolution in particular, you know, if you try to impose a particular vision of the world on people who don't want to accept that vision, you will have violence, you will have extreme levels of social disruption. So the claim is often made that utopia is an ideology, a dangerous ideology, because it, it tries to create a perfected society in the face of human imperfection. And it has little 
tolerance for those imperfections, labeling them you know, dangerous to society and worthy of being eradicated. So that's, that's, that's historically the argument. Um, I think there's a certain truth to it. Uh, I think you know, people with visions of co the total reconstruction of society are often not given to patience with those who oppose them. Uh, they're often given to claiming those who oppose them are evil uh, and, and you know, in league with dark forces. Uh, but I also think that you know, pigeonholing utopia as a particular ideology is, is, I think, dangerous because it suggests there's one particular vision of utopia that is correct. And this is, again, a matter of great debate among utopian scholars. There's the danger of making utopia into anything, right? Everything is utopian. All ideas that want to make the world a better place are automatically utopian. And that renders it so vast that it becomes meaningless. And the danger is to say only these particular ideologies are utopian, or belief systems are utopian, only these particular works are utopian, and put it within a very rigid framework. And I think people who want to put utopia in a rigid framework often say things like Marxism is utopian, and therefore, you know, the things Marxist regimes did are anti-utopian and bad, therefore utopia is a bad ideology. So that's been the historical argument uh, that uh, people have made as, with utopia as ideology. I think from my point of view, uh, it can be an ideology. It can turn into a, a rigid form of, of, of discourse and thinking about the world. But I think it's, it's also a, a worldview which is broader than merely just some uh, set of ideas that have been codified or laid down by some particular thinker. Yeah, in, in fact, in your... In your final chapter, uh, you actually set out some propositions for both utopia and utopian thinking. Uh, how did you come up with those propositions? Uh, you, you care to talk a little bit about those? Because I think what you're trying to do there is to, rather than to counter the view of utopia as an ideological vision that leads to some kind of totalitarianism, you're talking about utopia as uh, perhaps a potentially useful uh, political exercise. Sure, let me just open the book and mark that page. Uh, well, I think one, one thing, there's, there was an article in Utopian Studies about 20 years ago called uh, Homo Utopicus, the need for utopia. And I think that was the first thing that inspired me to think about you know, a place for utopian thought in, in, in these fraught times, is we need to dream of a better world. Um, if you stop dream, thinking the, that the world can be made better, uh, you give you give up to despair. You surrender to despair. Now, this this despair might be uh, otherworldly. You might say, "Well, the, the world is so bad that you know I'm going to wait on a, a future state." But I think that's that's also dangerous too, because that leads to a sort of fatalism, which is is uh, I think incorrect as well. So I think you need to believe in a better world in order to act in the world. You know, you need to believe in a better world if you teach. You need to believe in a better world if you have children. You need to believe in a better world if you, uh, you know, do any number of, of things that serve uh, your fellow man. And so I think that's one critical feature, you know, that we are homo utopicus. We die without dreams of a better world. Well, you're right, that without, without a dream, there can be no action. Exactly, exactly. Yes, we need to act. And we, how do we act? We act by thinking about what we want, what we believe to be good. And, and just. So I think that's critical. I think the other point is that, you know, the dreams of utopian authors are often have often been realized. I mean, 
I, I point out to my students all the time that compared to, say, people in ancient Athens, which we talk about a lot in political thought, we live like kings. You know, uh, we live healthier lives. We eat better food. You know, we travel. We interact with people across the world. These are these are miraculous things by the by the perspective of much of human history, even over the last hundred years. I think by a Zoom. <laughs> yes, via Zoom. I mean, it's amazing. I, I had an interview just last week with German public radio via Zoom, and the interviewer was in Berlin. I mean, that's astounding to even think about. I'm, I'm old enough to remember, as you are, when a long-distance phone call was a big deal. And uh, so and there was Dick Tracy with his with his uh, watch watch yeah. uh, little f television that was like fantastic. I know, I know, and so I think. That's one of the chapters I talk about utopian revolution. You know, Thomas Paine, for example, in 1790 proposes social security. He proposes, you know, starter loans for young people just starting out in the world. Uh, you know, and those things would have seemed impossible to imagine, right? The idea of old age pensions or something. But those eventually became reality. And so the dream is there. The need to dream is always I loved there. your treatment of Thomas Paine as a utopian thinker because he's become kind of an ossified uh, champion of. Uh, traditional American values or something that Thomas Paine was the, 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 the person who sounded uh, the call for revolution and, uh, and, and this produced this sort of very uh, common sense, which was his word, society. But, but in fact, you point out that his common sense leads him to some very utopian ideas. Absolutely, absolutely. I have, I have his bobblehead right here. Here he is, I'm holding a copy of Common Sense as well. For, so the listeners, uh, uh, Professor Jim Drizik is holding up a little bobblehead dollar, dollar time paying. <laughs> yeah. Things you have hanging around your office. Uh, it's it's full of all. As you well know, your office becomes full of all sorts of interesting souvenirs. But you know, it's it's so it's been attained on some level. Uh, it's also impossible because it's an aspiration we can never fully reach and perhaps shouldn't wish, wish to reach. Uh, you know, I think, I think that is important too. I mean, there's a, there's a great longing, as you well know, in politics for final answers to questions, right? This is what Hobbes calls the nookstans, the end time, the final decisions about all issues. And that's impossible to reach. And so utopia, we don't want to attain a final answer, because that would suggest that society has become to some sort of standstill. So it's it's both attainable for millions, but also unattainable in a, in a philosophical sense. And so, you know, the danger, that's a danger, right? Utopia uh, can be disappointing. We haven't reached it, right? I mean, I think about, you know, the promises of the future in science fiction and, you know, miraculous things that we're seeing. I remember when I was a kid in, in you know, in grade school, we had books by Werner von Braun for kids that were like, your future in space. And, you know, I honestly thought when we landed on the moon in 1969, when I watched that was four and a half, uh, I thought I'd go into space. I thought it would be a vacation spot, right? You just fly into space. And, but I didn't think we'd have Zoom. I didn't think we'd have, you know, I'd have more computing powers in this phone than the whole world had in like 1980 or something or 1970. I forget what year it is. You know, so, we, predicting the future is hard, and I think people often look negatively on utopia because they, 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 they think, oh, this utopia failed to predict the future completely or failed to predict 
you know, in the future, or, or was mired in its own context, so it didn't predict changes in, say, gender relations or racial relations. But, you know, it's hard to predict the future, and I think Utopia tries to do that, but not to say this must be, but to say here are some things that could be, which I think is, is, is a critical distinction. And this is a stimulation to people's imagination, right? That, uh, and as you say, I mean, I think uh, w- without that, without that, uh, human beings will not have anything to strive for. Uh, without uh, an ability to think in utopian terms, um, there's a kind of stasis uh, and, and, a dis- and despair, I would think. Right? I know a, a few years ago, uh, I remember reading people arguing that it's the end of utopia and nobody has utopian visions anymore. And I, we still are somewhat mired in that, this notion that uh, there's no way of really improving society. It's, 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 really, it's interesting if you, I mean, I've devoted some time to studying, you know, into the world thinking. And uh, it's, there's been never a civilization in human history that hasn't had people proclaiming the end times are coming, uh, whether on a religious basis or natural disaster or, you know, whatever, uh, society is decadent. And I think that that's a danger, this fashionable despair, right, this fashionable cynicism, uh, even in the face of, of, of mounting crisis, right? I mean, it, it just throw your hands up and give up and take and pat yourself on the back, right? For being so, I don't know, what's the word I'd use, woke, that you've that you just you've given up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm hip, right? I'm so hip that I'm just not going to care about the future, which is a very dangerous thing to have happen. Um, very dangerous indeed. In, in your book, you note that there's a lot of young adult fiction, which in fact is kind of utopian. Uh, even, even in young adult fiction that, that creates a kind of dystopia, but that dystopia is kind of a counterpart to a better society that's going to result once this dystopia is done away with, right? You mentioned that as a yeah. common theme in a lot of these books. Hunger Games, I'm not too familiar with any of them. Yeah, the, 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 the theme in almost all these YA dystopias is that you know young people band together and resist and sometimes successfully overthrow the oppressive regime. I mean, I think it's very, you know, it's it's fantasy on some levels, but I think it's a very positive vision versus just, you know, everything's terrible. There's no escape. I mean, that is that is that is hard to sustain. Um, you know, you think about like even in 1984, Orwell had to have that postscript which suggests this horrible regime eventually falls. Uh, you know, Atwood in, in Handmaid's Tale has to leave us an out that maybe of Fred escapes. Uh, because otherwise, you know, you would just give in completely to, to despair. I mean, it, it's just a terrifying vision. It, it, I found it interesting that you, you kind of imply that you have a long, you have a chapter on dystopia, which is the opposite of utopia. Uh, but you, you imply that even dystopian thinking is, is utopian. That is, it, it provides this, this uh, undesirable future, but that opens up the possibility of that undesirable future being replaced. And I think you're right. In, in Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, it's clear that there's a revolution brewing, right? Uh, uh, or other big dystopia, which I found fascinating, Oryx and Crake, about this sort of, there was a, in this era after climate change, where the climate's changed and there's been experimentation with uh, genetic modification and 
lot of that's disastrous. Um, uh, but even in that novel, there's a, a suggestion that there's maybe a new society, you know, emerging here. Uh, it's going to be better. Yeah, well, Handmaid's Tale, I think, is fascinating. I think it's very much like uh, most classic dystopian works, uh, 1984, Brave New World, uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Parable of the Talents, which is a wonderful, a wonderful book, uh, although very, very dark, um, that you uh, take current tendencies in a society of oppression, of, 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 of violence and, and hatred, and you accentuate them to the extreme. And... Uh, the hope, I think, of all those authors, I think of Orwell or Huxley or Atwood or Butler, uh, is that people will be mobilized to recognize these things and uh, not let them happen. Uh, you know, that, that, that I think is, is critical, you know, that, that we, we, we recognize the dangers facing us. So for, you know, for, for uh, Huxley and Brave New World, it's, you know, the, the creation of people, right? The genetic manipulation of people, the control of people through conditioning. And if we're aware of this, right, we can resist it. Just as Atwood with, you know, if, if you're aware of, you know, women becoming oppressed second-class citizens, you will fight against it. I think that's the, that's the utopian vision at the heart of any dystopia is that's this hope. There has to be hope. Uh, you know, just reading something that is horrifying and awful without any glimmer of hope to it, without any glimmer of resistance, I couldn't imagine the point of it. You know, there has to be some hope that this will end, that this can be overthrown, um, that this is uh, something that people can actually resist, uh, even if it means their own destruction. That you know, this this has this resistance has meaning, uh, which I think is really important. Um, Mark, you also write that utopian thought is humanist, and that utopian thought is about liberation and unity. Um, you know. Why is that? I mean, why, particularly the latter, liberation and unity, why is it that always kind of part of utopian thinking? What we, what we in ancient utopias, and, and even Moore's utopia, it's a liberation from want, from, from privation. Um, you know, Moore is, and, and Plato are willing to give up a lot of what we think of as human freedom in order to create a society of, of plenty and security. Uh, and I talk about this with my students, so I say, you know, Moore's utopia may seem to you very constricting, uh, very controlled, but for the people of his times, it would have seemed, seemed like a paradise. You work six hours a day, there's always food, there's always shelter, you know, there's always people looking out for you. Uh, that would seem wonderful. You're not being dragged off to fight in wars, you know, you're not, your house isn't being looted by some army. This would be wonderful. And I think in modern utopias, it's the same concept. We want to liberate people from fear fear of you know violence being directed against them we want to liberate them from fear of, of want of need of privation as well uh and that, so i think that's the critical theme i think unity is the other theme not not this sort of singular unity as aristotle says in the politics where everybody becomes like this one note just kind of keeps playing over and over again but a sense that we are indeed our brother's keeper that we are indeed somehow responsible for the life and well-being of our neighbor you know, uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, I think, is, is a critical utopian idea because it's, it's, a, it's an aspiration that's, that we must strive for. So I think that's the critical idea of unity, uh, that, you know, it's not making everyone the same. It's making everyone recognize the, the sort of solidarity among human beings and that solidarity that's necessary for human survival and human flourishing. Human dignity. Yes, absolutely. Yes. 
think. You also talk about utopian thinking uh, reshapes the limits of the possible. That seems to me extremely important of, of what the value of utopia is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you don't dream of new things, how will those new things ever happen? You know, every idea that's ever existed in the world was new somewhere once. Uh, and, and, you know, someone thought of it, right? Someone thought of democracy. Someone thought of, you know, I don't know, social security, right? So someone thought of these things. Uh, someone thought of universal basic income, right? Whatever other thing you want to throw out there. And, you know, it was new, right? It was a new thing that someone dreamed of. And they were probably surrounded by people saying this is impossible. This is always the case. And uh, they pushed forward and, you know, centuries, decades, whatever later, these things came to pass. And again, it's it's not a final resting point. It's not a nook stands. It's not a final end. It's a, it's a process and a, a continuation. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly in politics, really are faced continually of folks who say, you know, this thing is impossible. This thing just can't, can't happen. Uh, it's a very conservative mindset. Uh, I think I, I think utopianism seems to be anti-conservative. Well, I I, I think you could you could imagine conservative utopias. There, there have been written ones have been written. Ayn, Ayn Rand wrote several. Uh, the problem with them, I think they they. I live there. What's that? I don't want to live in Anne Rand's uh, no. utopia. No. There, was a, there was an excellent article in Utopian Studies last year about like you know, basically examining who actually does the work in Galt's Gulch, Gulch in, in, in uh, I think that's what is it, Atlas Shrugged. And uh, came to the conclusion, you can't tell. There's no way to tell who actually does the work because no one seems to. But, it's, but I think that one of the problems with a conservative utopian vision is often it's, it's often exclusionary in the sense that we don't want to try to universalize it. There's a uh, a movement, uh, and if you've ever heard of this, this guy Rod Dreyer, a conservative commentator, Benedict Option, Benedict yeah. Option, and that concept of you know withdrawing yourself from the fallen community uh, is actually quite an interesting one. But I think it's 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 also a, a different form of utopianism. It's it's basically you know we're pure and the society is is, is unclean. That, that 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 can lead to some very dangerous outcomes as well. Um, actually, interesting sideline of Mr. Dreyer. I, I wrote a paper on the Benedict Option for the Utopian Studies Conference about five years ago, and he agreed to be interviewed, but only in writing. And uh, so I sent him a bunch of questions, which he never responded to. So it was unfortunate because I really wanted to ask him if he thought these communities he was suggesting would become the object of violent hostility from other communities, uh, because that seems to be part of the tradition of, of these sorts of religiously separatist communities. You know, we call them conservative utopias, is they become the objects of hostility and violence. The Mormons in their early communities are an example, or even the Amish, you know, suffered that, and Hutterites and Mennonites as well. So I was interested in that question, and uh, unfortunately, he did not respond. But uh, I think there's, it's possible to argue for conservative utopias. I mean, but but again, I think the problem of, of a libertarian utopia would be a hard thing to sustain uh, because. You know, how, how could you not, how could it not fall apart in some sort of competition? Uh, for the listeners, there's a really fascinating uh, set of video games from about 10 years ago called Bioshock, uh, Bioshock 1 and Bioshock 2. And they're set in the bottom of the ocean in a libertarian community that is that has basically collapsed because of uh, rampant, unstoppable competition among the people involved. 
And so it's a really fascinating video game. Uh, you can just play it as kind of a mindless shoot 'em up, but you can also play it more deeply. And it raised the question, you know, can you actually have a sort of libertarian utopia? Uh, I think you could, but you'd still have to probably have some kind of backstop to prevent you know, utter destitution from occurring for many people. And that that's a, that's might be an ideological bridge too far for some libertarians. But, but even those, you know, what we call libertarian or conservative utopias still are imagining uh, something that's, that's possible. That's yeah. possible that, that could inform our, you know, day-to-day -day existence. So, absolutely, absolutely. I think, you know, certainly the values put forward by, you know, groups that have gone into the wilderness, as it were, to create these communities, you know, are often quite positive values. One of the fears is they're, they're, they're exclusionary, right? They're only, they only apply to the members of the group and are not easily translatable outside the group. Um, and this happens on the left, too. You know, you certainly have, you know, histories of communes that became very exclusionary and very, uh, very strange as well. So it, it's not, it's not a right-wing phenomenon exclusively, the sort of danger, the dangers of a sort of toxic utopianism. Right. And, and fanaticism that can emerge when you get people combined in those, in those, in those kinds of communities and, and, and the like. Well, well, Mark, this has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, I encourage listeners to, <coughs> to, to buy Mark's book or check it out from the library. Uh, it's a very interesting book, and, and we've only really kind of touched the surface here in, in this conversation. Uh, I'd, I'd like to end, actually, with the last sentence in, in your book, Mark, which I think really kind of sums up what we've been talking about here of the, of the, of the value of utopia. Uh, you, you write, uh, we must believe that we can create a more just and better world. Otherwise, we have nothing truly human to strive for. Uh, I think that's you know, very, very true and uh, something that we all need to, to think about. So, so thanks for the book. Um, uh, I certainly appreciate it, enjoyed reading it, and, and thanks for joining us in this conversation, Professor Jindrzyk. And thanks uh, again to, uh, to, to Chris Judge of the Providence College Office of Marketing Communications for the production work on this podcast. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, please tell your friends about Beyond Your News Feed.